of a thought process that we were in last time, as you recall. Uh, we were talking about discipline and effort in our Christian walk and the struggle that sometimes is involved in following Christ. Well, we're still on that thought uh, in 2 Timothy. We're going to be picking up at verse 8. Uh, we're going to read down through verse 10. And if I were to title this one, I, th I thought it was funny, so I'm going to share it with you. If I were to title this one, I would call it Dead or Alive. Uh, and you'll see, I think, as we go along. But uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, in your pew Bible, I apologize, it goes over onto two pages, so we're going to have a little bit of a flippant struggle here. And it goes like this. Remember that Jesus Christ, of the seed of David, was raised from the dead, according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Let's have a word of prayer before we get looking at this. Lord, we do thank you for giving us another day. A little bit dreary, a little bit drizzly, but we thank you for preserving us from the hurricane that seemed like it might have been coming up this way. Even in that, you're gracious. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that it has. We ask that you'll guide us through it by the power of your Holy Spirit. Show us what you'd have for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as I say, you might recall that uh, last week we were looking at the discipline and the uh, struggle that sometimes is involved in following Christ, and that that ought to be the natural state. If we're looking at our lives saying, why, why am I struggling? We shouldn't be surprised. That, that's what our natural state is supposed to be. Well, today, we're going to take a little bit of a look at exactly how Christ struggled himself for the gospel. And that's going to kick off what we're looking at. Let's back up and read verse 8 again. Remember, remember, we're in the context of talking about suffering for Christ. Remember that Jesus Christ, of the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel. It says, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. There's quite a lot contained in that little phrase. I don't know if you think about that. First of all, if someone's going to be raised from the dead, what other fact must also be true? That they were dead. That's right. That they were dead. And how did Jesus die? Jesus didn't live and die of old age like Almost all of human history, every human being, we pretty much all live to a certain age and then die of old age, right? That's not how Jesus died, was it? Yeah, he gave up the ghost. He, he was, if you want to think of it on a human level, uh, cut off in the prime of life uh, in his mid-30s. Jesus suffered and died on a Roman cross. Now, if even he... Jesus Christ, had to suffer such an ignominious death, then how can you and I, as his followers, expect anything less? We're supposed to be following him. How do we expect anything less than that? See, we're blessed if we don't need to follow him to that degree of suffering as well, right? I'm blessed if I get, that I, I've already uh, lived 50% past what he lived. 
Now that's a blessing right there to think about, isn't it? Some of you have gone more than that. <laughs> See, we got no reason to complain about the comparatively small annoyances that come up in our lives, right? Helps us to keep these things into a proper perspective. Uh, now, let's back up and think about something else. Je Jesus' death resulted in one thing that set it apart from all other deaths in human history. A lot of people have lived, a lot of people have died in, this, in human history. But Jesus' death resulted in something completely different. What was that? He was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead. Now that's God's way of declaring Jesus' divinity. Uh, we see that. I'm not making it up. Let's go over to quickly Romans chapter 1, verse 4. I'm going to uh, throw some references out at you later that you're going to have to look up yourself later. But Romans chapter 1, verse 4, uh, I'm going to back up to verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. It was the resurrection of the dead that declared Jesus was the Son of God. Death did not defeat the Son of God. So Timothy, Jesus' follower, doesn't need to worry either, does he? And by the way, neither do you or I. Also, by the way, this is one of only six times that Paul mentions Jesus Christ in that order in the pastoral epistles. He writes Christ Jesus over two dozen times. I think I counted 25 times where he says Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. This time he says Jesus Christ. What's the significance in that, Brother Dan? Well, by giving his human name first, remember, Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. If you uh, Jesus' full night, the name that he signed his checks with would have been uh, Jesus uh, ben Yosef, Jesus the son of Joseph. That's what his legal, his legal name would have been. He wasn't Jesus Christ as a name. Putting his human Jesus name first makes him more relatable to our humanity, doesn't it? Whereas Christ is just a title, and it refers to his job as Messiah. We're going to get uh, into that in just a little bit. It's always worthwhile to pay attention to these little uh, seemingly small details. When Paul says Jesus Christ, that's an unusual way to refer to him. So, since I brought that up, let's look at the meaning behind the word, the title Christ. It quite literally means anointed one. So, knowing that, my mind comes right back to David, which is interesting because that's exactly what uh, Paul's talking about here. He says, remember, Jesus Christ, the anointed one, of the seed of David, David was another one who was anointed, wasn't he? And David, he was Israel's king in ancient times, right? And Jesus was descended through a long line from him. Did you know that David was anointed as king 15 years before he was crowned as king. 15 years. David knew he was king, but he wasn't recognized as king. And what happened during those 15 years? 
That's right. Saul was trying to kill. He suffered a lot of things. He had to uh, pretend he was uh, mad. He had to run from the Philistines. He had to run from his own king, Saul. He had to, uh, Saul tried to kill him multiple times. He lived in a desert. He had to hide in a cave with 400 uh, bad guys just to stay alive. The cave of Adullam. Read about that. He suffered many things from, from many different places. Now, in a similar fashion, Jesus demonstrated his anointed status at his resurrection, right? God raised him from the dead. This is my son. He is anointed as the king of all creation. But he hasn't been crowned as king yet, has he? He's been anointed, but he's not crowned. He's not on the throne as king. How about another parallel? David was a warrior and a king, right? He was a warrior. He conquered all of what's modern-day Israel, also including uh, Syria, Lebanon, and uh, a good portion of what we would now refer to as Iran, uh, which we could say that that's where Israel ought to be occupying today, but I'm not going to get political here. Um, David conquered all of that as a warrior and a king. Jesus is going to return how? As a warrior and a king, right? We talked about that last time. Royal victory is in Jesus' bloodline. Just like David, who was a warrior and a king, anointed and then had to wait, suffer and wait before he was crowned, Jesus is doing the same thing. Even though Jesus uh, had to endure a great deal of suffering, as the ruler over all things, including death, Jesus receives his eternal kingdom, which was promised to David's seed back in 2 This is one of those references I'm going to give you. You're going to look up. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 16. Read that promise. The promise of the kingdom to David's seed forever. That's the promise to Jesus that Jesus is still looking for today. And see, that kingdom is going to bring benefits to all of its subjects, including Timothy, and including you and me. We're still looking forward to that. He's anointed, but he's not crowned yet. Now, as another related note, it's very interesting to me, maybe not to you guys, but it's interesting to me how all of the preaching of the gospel, in the every time the gospel's preached in the book of Acts, it mentions that Jesus was of the lineage of David. We even saw it in that one passage that I looked at in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. It made the point that Jesus, of the line of David, was anointed. That's not a small detail. That was crucial in the eyes of most first century believers. Every single time the gospel is presented in the book of Acts, it's Jesus Christ of the line of David. You and I might forget that at times, but they had it right in the forefront of their minds all the time. That's the gospel that, Jesus, that Paul preached. Remember, back in verse 8, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. That's what Paul said. That was critical to the gospel that Paul preached. Jesus was raised from the dead and descended from David. 
Who else could he be but the Messiah, based on those two facts? Descended from David and raised from the dead. Who do you think he is? That's what Paul's asking. Now, it's true. You and I, when we're sharing the gospel, we tend to focus more on the cross, right? And Paul did himself. Uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he, he was really focused on the cross. But the cross was nothing without the resurrection. And we see that. Let's look at Romans chapter 4. I want to look at this one. Romans chapter 4, particularly verse 25. Uh, and I'm going to back up to verse 24. I'm jumping in the middle of the thought, and I apologize for that. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses, and was raised again for our justification. If it weren't for the uh, raised again, we wouldn't be justified. So, having said all that that we've said so far, do you see what Paul's trying to tell Timothy here? Do you see what Paul's trying to tell Timothy? Yes, the gospel may plant you right in the path of great suffering. We looked at that last week. Just like Christ's obedience ended up in him being led to the cross, Jesus was led to the cross, you and I can expect suffering as well. But just as Christ was raised again, so can I expect to be glorified through the same thing. If I will simply obey to the end, just like Jesus did. Jesus was obedient all the way to Calvary's hill. If I'm obedient, I can expect the same results. Now, that may not have made much sense in the civilized Roman world of the day, that the descendant of some long-dead Jewish king held the keys to hope and life even in the midst of a life of hardship and death that he suffered. But even if it was foolish in those days to the world around them, and it was, that was what Paul and Timothy clung to. It was just as foolish in the Roman world as it is to people today. But Paul and Timothy clung to it. And you know what? As foolish as the world may think it today, I still cling to the same thing today. This world thinks that's nonsense. But I still cling to that today. You see, we're fighting an uphill battle in today's society, aren't we? We all know that. We're fighting an uphill battle. But that's really nothing new. Paul and Timothy were fighting an uphill battle too. The Romans said, that's crazy. A Jewish, Jewish king is supposed to be the anointed son of God, ruler of everything. That's foolish. It was just as foolish then as it is today. We're, they fought an uphill battle, you and I fight an uphill battle. That's nothing new. People haven't really changed that much. So let's move on to verse 9. Wherein I suffer trouble, as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Starts right off with wherein. Some Bibles might say for which. I don't know what your Bible says. Either way is very accurate. Uh, it's because of this gospel 
last phrase of the last verse, verse 8, because of this gospel message that Paul preaches, that he suffers. Now, the word that Paul chose to use here for suffer is very interesting because it only shows up two other places in the New Testament. We're going to see it in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 5 when we get there. I'll read it because it's just the next page. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, that's it. Do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Uh, and it's used in uh, James chapter 5 and verse 13. Let's quick flip over there. There's only a couple of other places it's used. We might as well look at them. James chapter 5 and verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? That's the word. Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. So it literally, this particular word, that's all three times it's used in the New Testament, uh, it literally means to endure hardship and adversity. Now there's another interesting word that's used here. This word, he says, I suffer trouble, I endure affliction, as an evildoer. That word for evildoer is only used by Luke to describe the criminals who were crucified with Christ. Those guys were described as evildoers. Same exact word. That's the only other time it's ever used. So what were those guys on trial? Uh, we don't know what their crimes were, but we know what their uh, sentence was, right? Death. Death. They got a death sentence on the cross. So from that we can apply that for preaching this gospel is why Paul is also facing capital punishment. Remember, Paul's in the Mamertine prison in Rome. I believe he died just a few hours after he set his pen down from writing this. Paul is facing capital punishment just as those criminals on Calvary were. They were on death row, so is Paul. See, Paul isn't hiding anything from Timothy. The gospel that he's calling Timothy to follow has led him straight to the Mamertine prison in Rome. It could very well do the same thing for Timothy. I'm not going to pull any punches here, Timothy. If you preach this same gospel that I'm preaching, it may very well end up with you dead. In fact, would you like to know a little bit of church history? Ever, anybody ever wonder how Timothy ended up? I'll tell you. Church history tells us that Timothy was dragged through the streets of Ephesus uh, behind horses after being stoned to death in 97 AD. He was 80 years old when he was stoned to death. 80 years old, stoned to death, and dragged through the streets behind horses. Uh, so what that, that tells me a couple of things. One, Timothy remained in Ephesus just like Paul told him to until his dying day. I think that's, that's a pretty good testimony. And he endured stoning. Uh, he was dead before he was dragged through the streets, but uh, he endured that just as Paul told him to. Now we've already talked about, and I've mentioned it many, many times, that I believe Timothy by nature was a very timid man. But I think this book of 2 Timothy encouraged him to have the wherewithal to do what he needed to do. See, God, why, why all this talk about suffering, Paul? Why all this talk about suffering? God uses suffering 
to accomplish things that he couldn't do otherwise in our lives. We, we sometimes, oh, why, why am I dealing with this? Why am I struggling with this? Why is this happening to me? Your focus is wrong. Your focus is on you. It may be happening to you for someone else. Think about this. Paul's suffering in prison in Rome, death row. If Paul didn't spend so much time in prison, we wouldn't have had any of the epistles that he wrote. Paul was too busy preaching the gospel to sit down and write until he was in prison. Most of Paul's writings were written from prison. Why was Paul suffering in prison? So you and I can sit here and benefit from these words. Have you considered that? Paul wasn't sitting there wondering, why am I sitting here in prison? Why am I? I don't deserve to be put on capital punishment. Paul was in prison so that he'd finally have time enough to write these things down so you and I can benefit from it. It's not always about you. And it's not all somber and depressing either. Notice what's not bound. Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. The saving word of God cannot be bound. Paul might be sentenced to death. And Timothy may very well suffer and die as well. But the gospel is free and it can never be tied down. God's word is free to move. Now, uh, if we step back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 1, it says that it's uh, spreading rapidly. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of God may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. The word of God is free having free course, and it was spreading rapidly. Uh, I'm not going to read it right now. Go ahead and look up 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 to 24, 25. It says that it endures forever. Now, I do find it uh, somewhat ironic that Paul, who bound and killed so many Christians in his youth, ended up his life bound and killed for the very same gospel. The very same gospel that Paul was binding and killing people ended up with Paul being bound and killed. I find that ironic. But you see, that gospel, Paul was trying to bind people up who were spreading the gospel, but the gospel itself wasn't bound, was it? It didn't stop. Paul didn't stop it. He tried, but he didn't stop it. In fact, he ended up spreading it. No matter how many people have tried to bind the gospel, they never end up binding the gospel. Voltaire and Nietzsche both called for the destruction of the Word of God. Uh, Voltaire even went so far as to buy his house was a house where they used to print Bible. It was a printing house where they used to print Bibles. He decided to put it out of business and live there, and he asked for Bibles to be burnt in the streets of Paris. They, Voltaire and Nietzsche both called for the destruction of the Word of God. Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, name whoever you want to, they all ban the Bible, they all burn the Bible, and yet it goes on, doesn't it? For centuries. Can I turn to Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, it's a familiar verse, you know it. In fact, it's quoted in that passage in uh, 1 Peter that I steered you toward just a minute ago. Uh, Isaiah 40 and verse 8 says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. 
Uh, let's skip over, still in Isaiah 55 and verse 11. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Those are pretty good promises. People throughout history have tried to wipe it out, but it just keeps coming back. It's like, it reminds me, you remember when we were little, you used to have those uh, punching bag things with a weight in the bottom, and you poof, and it, boom, poof, boom, you can't win against that. Uh, verse 10, next page in the Pew Bible. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So, Paul's continuing to call for Timothy to stand strong. Therefore, he says. So when he says that, he's referring back to the two things that we just looked at. One, that Paul's suffering because of Christ. And two, that the gospel is still free. So because of those two facts, Paul's ready to endure whatever is necessary. Whatever it takes, I can endure it, just as Jesus Christ himself did. Now, because we, as Christ's followers, we have His Spirit in us, we've got the same enabling power, don't we? To overcome the obstacles in this mortal world. Just as uh, Paul did. Paul said that he did in uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. Go ahead and read that yourself. I'm not turning there right now. But lest we forget, I want to remind you that Paul's not talking theory here either. Paul knows exactly what it means to endure suffering and to have overcoming power on many, many occasions. Go ahead. I'm also going to drop another one on you. Go ahead and read this one. Uh, and if you've been paying attention, this is the third time, third week in a row that I've mentioned this particular passage for you to go home and look up. When Paul's talking about really enduring suffering, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 down to chapter 12 and verse 10. Read that passage. Paul knows what he's talking about. That's the third time I've mentioned it, and I haven't read it yet. I'm encouraging you to read it this afternoon. The word for endure here is hypomeno. Hypomeno. It's used many times in the New Testament. It's a very common word in the New Testament. It means uh, it's always referring to perseverance in the faith. Jesus, Paul, James, they all used it many, many times. We're going to see Paul use it again next week when we get to verse 12. Uh, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Talking about reign, it's, that's hypomeno. We're, uh, uh, I, I mean, not, not reign, suffer. Hypomeno. See, Paul calls, uh, Paul sees service for Christ, sharing the gospel, to involve stamina, to involve risk-taking. You'll see that when you get to uh, that passage in 2 Corinthians I just mentioned. Uh, it requires steadiness. It requires consistency. Those sound like military qualifications, don't they? Stamina, risk-taking, steadiness, consistency. 
See, we're still in the same context that we were in last week, where it said, endure suffering as a good soldier. Remember, we had the military illustration last week. We're still in the same context. Paul was certainly someone who could be counted on to give steady, all-out effort for the elect's sake, he says. He did it for the elect's sake. Not for any other reason. Now, that's meant to encourage Timothy to do the exact same. And by the way, you and I are expected to do the exact same. Give steady, all-out effort for the elect's sake. See, the gospel is the fulfillment of all God's promises to mankind. From all the way back in the first chapter of Genesis, God's been making promises to mankind. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every one of those promises. And we need to proclaim that to the world. The fact that God elects certain people to share in those promises does not impact my call to share that gospel with everyone I meet. Everyone I meet, I need to share that gospel with. Because God may know who He's chosen, but I don't. So it's on me to share with everyone. Because I surely don't want to miss the opportunity to share the gospel with someone whose God has elected. See, people sometimes get uptight about these points, but they haven't really taken time to think about it. It's just a matter of perspective. God knows who's going to be saved. I don't. So I need to share the gospel with everyone. And can you imagine, let's think for a minute, let's put ourselves in Paul's sandals for a second. Can you imagine how shocking this truth would be to Paul? Paul. Paul was raised a Jew. Paul was raised a Pharisee of all things. A Pharisee. He believed that only Jews were God's chosen people. Only Jews were the elect. And maybe not even all of them. Maybe only Pharisees. And yet here he is preaching the gospel of salvation to heathen Gentiles. What a turnaround in Paul's life. And that ought to inspire you and I. That's what Paul's saying when he says, I've been sharing this gospel for the elect's sake. Paul doesn't know who's... I've, I've come to a realization, Paul says, that I don't know who the elect are. So I need to share this with everyone I meet. And that's the perspective you and I need to have. I don't know who the elect are. God does. God certainly does. I don't. I need to share the gospel with everyone. Paul's eye is still on the gospel, you see. Even as he's threatened with imprisonment, he's in prison, and almost certain death, I believe he died within hours of writing this. And so should Timothy's focus be on the gospel, and so should our focus be. I think that's where I'll stop. I think that's a good spot. Mind if I close in a word of prayer?